Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. With me, Russell Brand, this week I spoke to Anna Whitelock. Anna is a British historian and academic specialising in the Tudors and the monarchy. She's director of the London Centre for Public History and Heritage at Royal Holloway University of London. She's absolutely fantastic and brilliant. Her conversation flows very easily. It's accessible. She can dot about from historical esotericism to just colloquial chit chat is the work of a moment for her you'll really really enjoy this podcast she talks about what's going to happen when the queen dies what's the function of the royal family the constant dilemma of seeming normal whilst seeming touched like to, to be touched by god it's absolutely fantastic before we get into that let's do a bit of personal promo Go and subscribe to my YouTube channel, please, for well-being and spiritual videos completely free of charge three times a week. Subscribe and click the notification button. You'll get five videos a week. We check the comments, so do please comment and join my mailing list. As we start to develop utopias, I want direct access to you. Go to russellbrand.com. You'll be the first to be told about upcoming shows. You'll receive exclusive content not found on my social media or YouTube channel, and you'll feel a tremendous sense of belonging. Uh, I don't know you. I hope you feel that. Check out my comedy special Rebirth on Netflix as well. Always helps for me to continually be viewed on Netflix. This just keep doing that. And if you want to chat to me on social media, it's at Rusty Rockets and Under the Skin, and on Instagram it's at Russell Brand. So please do that and you know, follow me on Facebook if that's the sort of thing that you do. The last episode we did was with Elif Shafak. Let's have a look at some of the. Comments, Miran Jong 83 goes, Oh my non-denominational God, everything about this conversation was beautiful and stunning, especially her voice. I agree, magical woman. Jolka Slipkogo, it resonated with me when Shafak Alif, that's her Twitter name I guess, was talking about being a humanist and belonging to many places at once. As a Polish person with Bosnian and Ukrainian heritage living in the UK, it's precisely how I feel. I wish more people could empathise with this instead of just assuming everyone belongs to one place. That's a very good point. I've not really considered that and that she's talking about immigration there and belonging and nationhood and who has the permission to be part of a community thanks for letting us know that joker and i think we all belong to one another and we all belong together colonel womofo bloody hell many nuggets two-time listener this one thank you it is a full of nuggets with nuggets though i always think of all right there's gold nuggets then there's chicken mcnuggets and then there's nuggets of poo those are the only things you get nuggets of and on that beautifully observed piece of linguistic dexterity let's join myself i've already joined myself but let's you join myself and anna whitelock for a fantastic episode of under the skin trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right we're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss it doesn't look like an ideology What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Anna Whitelock, thanks for coming on this podcast with me. My pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. You're an expert on monarchy, which which period of monarchy and specifically British monarchy, is it? Yes. Well, I mean, originally Tudors and Stuarts, my PhD that I did with David Starkey, you might have wow. heard of him. Wow, yeah. of course. Um, him uh, was on the Tudors 
but then since then, I've got increasingly interested in the modern monarchy because, of course, actually the monarchy, by definition, isn't modern. You know, it's an age-old institution. So to understand what's going on now and what might happen in the future and why things are done the way they're done, you have to understand how it's always been and how it's evolved over the past few centuries. So actually, I've increasingly become a commentator on the modern monarchy, which is fascinating. What a tenacious institution the monarchy is. How does such a, an anachronistic idea survive? How do they manage the trick of saying, we're just like you, and yet we're different from you and should be afforded privilege? How historically has that line been walked and how is it walked now? It's a really good question. I mean, it's all about... Uh, being seen not to change too much, but at the same time to gradually evolve. So you've got to get that really uh, well-timed. And of course, in the past, I mean, the monarchy was absolutely set above everybody else. I mean, we're talking about, you know, God's anointed one. We're talking about divine right monarchy. We're talking about a monarch who was believed to be able to cure people of tuberculosis, what was known as like the royal touch, that they would touch people and they would, you know, they would be cured and people would, you know, queue up for the royal touch, these kind of quasi-priestly qualities. And actually, you know, what was for me quite interesting about, for example, the whole Diana phenomenon was actually in a kind of secular way, people were still talking about, you know, the power and the potency of the royal touch when you think about her, you know, caressing those um, AIDS um, victims and so on, you know, there was still a potency. But then over time, the whole idea of the monarch being divinely appointed, and of course we did have in this country in the middle of the 17th century, a period of a republic, you know, for 11 years, uh, Oliver Cromwell, many people have heard of him, but actually perhaps don't properly realise that, you know, we killed, we executed our king. Our revolution against the monarchy was far ahead of, for example, the French Revolution, which was, you know, more than a century later. We got rid of the king for a time, but we brought him back because actually Oliver Cromwell proved to be pretty much a king in all but name and we really didn't have a very good alternative. And then over time, of course, we have the development of a parliamentary system and a parliamentary monarchy, which, of course, actually has been in the news quite a lot recently because there's a sense of what role does the queen play and how what role does parliament play and the executive play. And then to gradually sort of maintain a sense of relevance for themselves, the monarchy, they did have to go through this kind of rebranding. And they often, of course, have to go through a period of rebranding to a greater or lesser extent, perhaps, you know, most notably when uh, the House of Windsor was born, because, of course, this is a German family suddenly realising in the midst of the First World War that having a German name wasn't really the best thing. So let's think of a quintessentially English name I know the House of Windsor. So, of course, the House of Windsor was born, in, you know, in 1917. But then you have this idea of let the monarchy be the ultimate family, this kind of like example of this family on a pedestal. So Victorian Albert and all their children, it became this the ideal family. And that continued really until the 1980s and the 1990s. And then suddenly this whole notion of the royal family as this ideal family, of course, comes crashing down because of the divorces of uh, many of the Queen's children and then the whole Diana scandal and all of that. And then suddenly, with the death of Diana, monarchy suddenly looks like it's on the ropes. And for the first time, really, in her reign, the Queen probably gets it wrong for a time. And any of you have seen that film? Uh, have you seen The Queen? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> not impressed, but it did bring... No, I, I, I am you I'm like... banging to... What I like about, just to let you know, my yeah, perspective, yeah, so on, you yeah. don't have to have any self... Uh, not self-doubt, but the, the doubt on my interest in this subject. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is like, I am interested because it's a... You know, I'm interested in symbols and archetypes yeah. and power narratives. And the fact that the, this institution can be sustained in the face of progression, that their rebranding exercises have been... So it's a total anathema. There's no reason to have a royal family. I was thinking about it. It's that all the royal family is a symbol of is at some point a group of people took power from another group of people using violence. Yeah. And the but fact that we still celebrate it Yeah, and ultimately, amazing. I mean, to speak... Yeah, exactly that. And also, of course, you know, the symbol of the monarchy is this woman in her 90s who's, you know, five foot nothing tall. You know, it's bizarre. I mean, she's this kind of, you know, small presence, but actually as a global brand, you know, there's nothing like it. Um, yeah. You know, she's seen off so many prime ministers. Um, you know, she's her coronation was in 1953. And now she's lived through this whole period of, you know, like media revolution. If you think of all the social change that's happened during her reign, huge. Um, but at that moment when Diana died, you know, she was up in Balmoral doing what monarchs were supposed to do, which was in a time of mourning, retreat, protect the children, Harry and William. Um, but of course, you know, the baying hordes in London, the media were going, where are you, ma'am? You know, you're not, you should be here. You should be somehow publicly expressing your grief. And they, you know, the monarchy was kind of wrong footed. And the Queen, if you remember, had to make that speech. And Tony Blair was kind of brokering it behind the scenes. And she made a speech and she talked about, you know, as a grandmother, I'm, you know, I feel this. And Diana has a lot to teach us. And um, from then on, really, the monarchy has tried to be work sort of at least in tandem or even one step ahead of the media and try and get the sort of way ahead. I mean, there was a way ahead committee formed to try and plot a way through about how they were going to manage this new evolving media landscape. But, you know, you only have to see the recent stuff about Harry and Meghan and the backlash against Meghan and all that's going on there to think, you know, what what's going to happen now? Man, I've got some questions. Go on, hit me One with it. is like, one is... Uh, it's more of an observation or question. This is like, the, like a question where someone essentially is, I've got a question. Do you think I'm clever because I've said this? I That's come from <laughs> the world of academia. I'm up to speed on that tactic. <laughs> so here's my, do you think I'm clever because I've said this question. Um, isn't it interesting that female monarchs are the perhaps the most defining British monarchs? And for me, that suggests that at the point that... Uh, that we became a Protestant nation, much of which for me seems like the, the, a kind of denial of the divine feminine, like the relegation of the mother of yep. Christ, that, that somehow those appetites are vivified through powerful uh, female you know, God figures, as you said, like, you know, these anointed figures that symbolize the divine and the divine right to rule and the divine right for power. It's yeah. something about a nation. You're spot on. And actually, of course, with the end, of, I mean, you know, my first book was on Mary Tudor, who was actually the first crown queen of England. People think of her as Bloody Mary. They think of perhaps Elizabeth as the first crown queen. It was actually Mary. But under Elizabeth, who, of course, was head of first, you know, female head of the Church of England. And of course, to, as a kind of concession to attitudes about that, she was the one who changed the title Supreme Head, which had been Henry VIII's title for the English Church, to Supreme Governor. And actually, of course, that's the title that remains today. But to speak to your point, you know, we think about uh, the Virgin Mary and all of those and all of that with the with Catholicism and the and the various miniatures that would be hung up in people's houses. What we see under Elizabeth is the cult of the Virgin Queen. 
and miniatures portraits were disseminated in you know in the same kind of way and actually people hung pictures of the queen up and it she did become you know the virgin queen this and the idea actually of I mean, what was this brilliant piece of spin was the fact that ultimately she was a postmenopausal unmarried queen, total political dead end, total political liability. But Elizabeth I managed to rebrand that barren body into being this great site of strength, almost as comparable as the kind of strength of, of a male body, which used to be, if you think, articulated by basically Henry VIII's prominent codpiece because sexual potency and political power, one and the same thing for a bloke. If you're a female, any suggestion that you weren't chased, total, you know, political suicide. Wow. Okay. Oh, crikey. Basically Henry VIII's prominent codpiece because power, oh. one of the same thing for a bloke. If you're a female, any suggestion. Wow. Well, this is the media age you see we're living in. You'll be astonished I'm being to heckled. learn that one of the things that came up is Lucy Worsley. No! <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Who like is a, that? Staying is within female. I wonder what uh, agitated Siri there about. Yeah. Obviously, it was the word codpiece. Cod this is really after was. my phone. It is your phone. There's um, a kind I'm of like... I'm thinking of getting a new codpiece. Yes, <laughs> yes, of course. Another one, Russell. That's, Let it I go. I love it. Being Stop heckled being so by insecure. your phone. Yeah, exactly. Leave that over there, That's for excellent. heaven's sake. Um, so what Elizabeth the Virgin Queen did is in a sense sort of made her chastity phallic in a totally. way. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you think about the Armada portrait, have you seen that Armada portrait? That, that most famous one. Big one. She's at the front of the picture, her body, and she's got a hand on a globe and there's the defeated Spanish Armada in the background. Mm, yeah, I do think I If you think that about much. that, what she's covered in pearls. Pearls are a symbol of chastity. But the other thing that's going on, if you look at her groin, which you may not have done. No, I, that's a queen and I averted my gaze. Well, I would vert your gaze, <laughs> whatever the expression is, because if you look at her groin, you'll find a strategically placed bow. And it's basically going, look at my groin, look at my virginity. And what happens in the Spanish Armada portrait is she's saying... Just like England was impregnable, oh, yeah, it wasn't so penetrated cool. by the Spanish. My body has also not been penetrated. And so suddenly there becomes this kind of one and the same thing, the royal body and the body politic, which was basically Beautiful. what it used to be under the male monarchs because it was easier to kind of square that circle and make that case. Under a female, it was like weak and feeble body, strong England. How does that work? And Elizabeth managed mm. in this careful kind of spin make her body even though it was a complete liability you know she was like you know unmarried barren old suddenly it became a real sign of strength that's excellent isn't it and i suppose it shows that all signs are powerful only through what we invest in them like the great trick of the monarchy is to sustain our engagement the second we as a nation or any nation says hold on a minute and, and this is probably true of all power although of course democratic power is underwritten by the idea that we've somehow participated in it sure. even though you know, i'd query that of course but yeah, like yeah, a, yeah. but like a, the, the minute we say why are we funding a monarchy? Why do we have a monarchy? Why do we need a monarchy? Once those questions, like the, the the job of the monarchy has got to be, they've got to be sort of visible and present, but somehow not provoke or evoke those questions. Because yeah. surely the, the one of the second one of the things I wanted to get your um, thoughts on Anna is that the tendency surely is towards get rid of the monarchy. That's the thing that's one, if there was a natural teleology, if you could ever use such a phrase, like it would be towards as witnessed through what you're talking about with 
uh, Harry and Meghan, they're always, and when I say they, I mean the media, the story that's looking to be told is that's fucking get rid of these people. <laughs> like, yeah. That's always there, isn't it? The tension for that. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, if you think about it, it is an anachronistic institution. You know, it's all about hierarchy. It's all about privilege. It's all about birthplace. It's all about white inherited privilege. So, you know, it ticks all the un-PC boxes, if you like. So, mm. you know, it's on the table, if you like, to be revised and considered. Largely, those questions haven't been asked because, of course, you know, we're moving towards the end of the Queen's reign. And I think most people, I mean, even though, you know, sort of diehard Republicans would go, you know, the Queen, fair play to her. You know, she's lived a long life. Yes, she's had a privileged life, but she's also, you know, she's out there now still pressing the flesh, doing her job. She could have her feet up at home, but she's not. Most people go, OK, we'll wait till she dies. But then there has to be big questions need to be asked, you know, and it's like, what is the monarchy for? What does it represent? Who cares? And I think what's really interesting, you know, and, you know, given that you're from the world of celebrity, if I can use that word, um, you know. Why not? Go on. Look at my scarf. Exactly. Exactly. You ooze celebrity. But it's like now, you know, what is the difference between monarchy and celebrity? And I think this is the problem that Harry and Meghan are walking around into because, of course, Harry and Meghan chose or Meghan chose to take a royal title. So she is Duchess of Sussex. Now, with that comes a degree of expectation. And, you know, there's been a whole lot of fuss because, you know, they didn't, for example, she didn't stand on the steps of the hospital when she'd given birth to Archie in that photo call, which actually people made out had been going on for years. It was only a tradition that started under Princess Diana. But, you know, that they didn't reveal... Standing on those steps is one of our proudest traditions. Exactly, exactly. It's just a thing that got made no, up. exactly. But, you know, and they didn't release the names of the godparents and they've got this Instagram... Um, account and they're kind of they're kind of bypassing the traditional media and then just recently you know Elton John funded their private jet to his holiday resort and now there's all this campaign about outrageous because Harry's a kind of eco warrior and now he's you know he's using private jets. But don't you think Anna to, to speak to a few of those points when you said you know it represents hierarchy privilege white power and it's you know you you could argue that's ticking the wrong boxes at this time isn't that a demonstration of how superficial many of the apparent progressive changes that have been made are that you know oh no now this is a sort of you know we're all down with lgbtq this is yeah. you know we're trying to end patriarchy but i i would argue that nominal uh, superficial changes can always be afforded in these areas as long as power and privilege are not ultimately affected and the sustenance and continued like the continuation of the royal family is a demonstration of how what really happens with power power continues power abides and you know like this um those attacks on you know pr that that is the core hypocrisy like that you can't like, of course they're using bloody private jets the royal family you can't yeah, like, yeah, you know yeah. what you're gonna have a royal family living in a council house in dagenham like like what the what is that then yeah yeah, it, yeah. that you, that's this is what it epitomizes well this is the thing and i totally yeah i mean that's the point but also what where you've also got this tension is the monarchy also you know which is what you point you made at the beginning is oh they're just like us and you've had the part of this sort of modernization has been you know, I remember when, uh, you know, George was born and people were like, oh, look at Will uh, look at William. He's strapping the kid He's into the, the car seat. seat. Yeah, just I've like... i got a car seat. you got like, a car just seat. Every, oh, look, you know... I'm going to kill you. Yeah, but, you know, like every... He's pictured in Waitrose and Kate's in... It's just like anybody else. Now, 
all of that's fine and lovely, but what's gonna, there's going to come a point where William is crowned king and at that point everybody's supposed to go, oh, he's now set above the rest of us. He is divinely appointed to preside over us. And then everyone's going to be like, but he's the bloke who was shopping in Waitrose, you know, a Where's couple of... Where's your car seat now? So you, this is the problem. I mean, and everything's got a bit... There's been a bit of a backlog because one of the problems of the monarchy in some sense and or its strength is the fact that they are long livers. You know, so you've got this, basically this kind of waiting room now of, uh, of monarchs. You know, you've got Charles, who's now 70. He's not even started his, basically, the job that he was born for yet. You've then got William. Now, William might not even be, you know, who was supposed to be the kind of bright young thing, prospect of the monarchy. William might not be, you know, he might be 50 or something before he becomes king. There's just this kind of backlog. Um, and I think, I mean, I've thought about this a lot. And I, you know, I made some comment to the press about that I think when the Queen dies, there's going to be a really lively debate. And I think it's hard to predict what might happen because... You know, especially younger people now, you know, you can get ahead of steam on social media. Who knows what might happen? And there's all kinds of passionate feelings about national identity and all of this. But then you think, okay, what's the mechanism by which we would get rid of monarchy? Well, the Tories are never going to vote a referendum on monarchy. They're never going to get rid of the monarchy. So the only prospect you can see sort of in the short to medium term is a kind of Jeremy Corbyn government where he might say, let's have a referendum on the monarchy. Um, but, you know, given how we all feel about referendums now, is that going to happen? What do you think will happen when the Queen dies? As one of the most senior academics on the subject of monarchy, you're continually... Uh, you've recorded obituaries already, haven't you? Yeah. I mean, so that's well, mad. Well, although, yes, it is mad. But, of course, any significant political figure or, you know, figure in public life, you know, obituaries are, are sort of made about them as soon as they, you know get into the public view so they're ready to go but of course if you're a member of the royal family and you're the queen or prince philip or you know the sort of senior elderly members of the royal family preparations are being made and rehearsals are being made you know i've done all kinds of walkthrough programs ready for the day have you that will come yeah absolutely what's it called london bridge is down yeah yeah london bridge um and it's you know making sure that you know the tone is right and i mean what for me what's i have to say i can be completely candid with you i mean i feel slightly conflicted about the whole thing because okay prince philip when he dies clearly he's had a really significant actual you know life and influence on modern britain you know yes he's been one step behind the queen but he's been there in all kinds of uh situations and you know everything that you can say about the queen to some extent has to be said about philip but at the end of the day he's also an old bloke and when he stepped down from royal duties a lot of those kind of comments about him have been said so there's going to be at least a day of coverage on the him i think it's going to be quite hard to generate a lot of public interest i really do with the queen it's going to be slightly different. But as far as I know, there's going to be three days of wall-to-wall coverage on terrestrial television. And what's striking to me, and I have to say, I just find this really odd when you think about royal commentators and royal editors, you know, the kind of main TV royal editors. You know, Channel 4 don't have one, Channel 4 News, but ITV, BBC. If you think about it, when they uh, report the monarchy... It's really always kind of slightly reverential and it's not, they don't report the criticism. They don't really report the kind of, or what is this actually that important? And, you know, when the Queen dies, yes, of course, it will be a significant historical event. Absolutely. But there's also going to be people that genuinely who go, I, you know, 
poor old dear, she's had a good life, I don't really care. And that's the kind of thing that I think will be missing at the time when everybody's kind of grieving and publicly mourning. Her reign straddles so much social change, as you've already said. Her Majesty was coronated in the 1950s. Since that time, we've seen so much revision, the way that power is regarded, the way women are regarded, the way hierarchies, authority, privilege is regarded. Now, my argument is that that many of these debates take place superficially without ever addressing the economic and imperial causes of inequality, say. But the death of the Queen will be a time where Britain reviews its identity you know we've like going through this surge of nationalism as represented by brexit presumably the queen will die over the next five years and when that happens we we i think that there will be a degree of unexpected grief in our she is the symbol of what this well, country sort of is. there's a national identity crisis. I think, I mean, she's got a lot of soft power. I mean, you know, it is part of the global brand of Britain. And I mean, one of the, a new project that I'm working on is basically exploring the Queen in her 15 other realms. Because what perhaps people don't realise is, you know, she's our Queen. She's Queen of England, but she's also Queen of Australia and Queen of New Zealand and Queen of Canada, which maybe people know. But she's also Queen of Jamaica, Queen of St. Kitts, nine Caribbean islands she's also queen of. I mean, that's so mental, isn't it? It's bonkers. Like, if you're living in St. Kitts, like, oh, there's the queen. Yeah. Like, what relevance has well, that got Well, this is what I want to explore. Tyranny. Well, and sometimes, I mean, you know, yes, to some extent she goes on royal tours there, but she hasn't been for a long time. So they're like, you know, what is the attachment? And, and historically, there's been a great attachment to the queen. And what's been interesting is... You know, anecdotally, people say that even though people kind of have resistance against Britain, the Queen is kind of somehow separate to that. But what about now? I mean, why are they still with us? Why on earth is St. Kitts or, you know, these other small islands in the Caribbean still, you know, believe and, you know, regard the Queen as theirs? I reckon because it requires an impetus to change and it requires someone to weaponise the idea of bringing down the monarchy. If you could say that, you know, if you, if the the position that you took is we want to end inequality, we want a fairer and more just society. And one way that we can uh, embody and demonstrate the truth of our intention is we will no longer bow to these imperial figures and the perfect time to do that would be yeah. the death of Queen Elizabeth I think British like you know yes you're, you're, uh, former colonies and Commonwealth nations I reckon yeah. you'll see I mean god I'm more interested in what you think well I, I'm guessing you think a lot of them are going to shrug off the yoke of well, imperialism it, I at think that point well it's hard though because I mean when you look into it you know you need the way that they were set up was that for example you have to get a two thirds majority in in a referendum or something. That's out of order. That's what a lot of bollocks democracy is. You've got to get a two-thirds majority. Yeah, it's, okay. And a lot of people, it's not <laughs> a priority for people. You right. know, so it's, there is this sort of weird inertia thing as well that's going on. And I mean, I think also, how, I mean, just talked about your point when you kind of like, if you want to challenge the system and you want to overturn, you know, the hierarchy, you know, you begin with a monarchy. But actually, you know, when you get rid of the monarchy, then what happens? I mean, do we really see, are we really going to believe that we see a massive redistribution of wealth? And what alternative system do we have? I mean, to some extent, the best argument for the monarchy at the moment is 
well, someone come up with the alternative that's more persuasive and more compelling. But that is one of the most powerful tools of conservatism that exists. What are you suggesting I am? <laughs> the idea <laughs> that, you know, like, well, well, you come up with an alternative. Yeah. You know, I think the first thing we have to do is liberate ourselves from the idea that we're competing with, comp with perfection. We're competing, yeah. in fact, with tyranny and inequality. So even if we were offering as an alternative tyranny and inequality... We'd only have to be marginally better than the yeah, current yeah, yeah. inequality for right, well, it to warrant. Try, let me try this on you. What about, I mean, at the moment, we're in terms of the kind of spectrum of monarchy, we're right up the, at the bling end. You know, are we, we are pomp and pageantry. <laughs> you know, well, just think about it. I mean, you know. The, but why do you want some version of monarchy? Well, you see, this is scaled the Scaled down monarchy. I saying, don't want one of them Scandinavian ones well, no, where they're basically not royal. Well, no, but that's what I was going to ask bling you. Bling or nothing. Well, okay. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's one argument that you have the kind of, you know, the bicycling monarchy and you could have these great eco champions. That insults them and us. Okay, fair enough. A king enough. on That's a good. bike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then your assumption is, which so many people also assume, like I was on Sky News yesterday and I was talking about Harry and Meghan and basically they had me up against Graham Smith, who's the CEO of, um, you know, the Republic movement. And I was just like... What are you offering, mate? Well, I'm... President. Happy. Yeah, exactly. He didn't really come up with anything. But the point is, why, because I'm a historian of monarchy, do people just automatically assume that I'm a supporter of monarchy? Mm. Like, no, not at all. I mean, I, you know, as a historical phenomenon, I think, you know, it's really interesting. I think the Queen is really fascinating. But I don't, I'm not a supporter of monarchy, particularly. Um, I think we are... Don't you learn to love it just through your study of the subject? Doesn't it make you enamoured of the institution really and its power? I'm really fascinated by it. I'm really fascinated by it. And, but I think I'm fascinated by ideas of... Well, I mean, to some extent, what you're interested in, you know, how much image is important and how much the idea of charisma and what charisma really is. And then this whole idea that, you know, with the monarchy, you can't let too much. I mean, you know, this sort of wise um, commentator said, you know, you can't let too much light shine in. Mm. You know, you, you've got to kind of maintain the mystique. Mystery. And that's the I mean, the queen f has played a blinder in the sense that even in a kind of modern 21st century, 24 hour media age, she has re remained completely kind of inscrutable. No one really knows what she thinks. You know, she's the most pictured woman on the planet, but actually we know little about her. And there's a reverence for her body. I mean, if you remember, you know, when Paul Keating back in the day in Australia put his arm around her. I'm Michelle still angry Obama. about that. I know, exactly. What was he called? Like the lizard of whatever. Get your hands off our queen. Well, see, look at you. <laughs> You're a monarchist dying to get out. I can't believe are. it because, look, because they are effective. I, like the background I come from, people bloody love the royal family. You know, so like, tell me about that then. I mean, what's the story? Like, my grandmother, your... all yeah. of them. Okay. Like, you know, no one's, there's not an ounce of anti, you know, maybe. Is my, your grandma still with us? No, no, okay. like, but all of our grandma, our grandmothers yeah, are no, wedded yeah. to the idea of the queen. They they're, they look a bit like the queen mum, all yeah. of them. <laughs> they won't like, hear anything against her. Absolutely, they won't. Yeah. And what what I feel like, what I feel is important, like on a personal, like, what I feel like is at the point that the project of secularism requires that nation replaces God, and for yeah. nation to replace God, you need godly figures. You need a pan a pantheon, yeah. and I feel like the like the royal family is such a brilliant way of doing it of creating a family of gods that we're meant to yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that we revere and worship and i can see well, when it works well it's a, it's brilliant because otherwise what is a nation why are we binding ourselves together yeah, yeah, as yeah. a tribe of 60 million people you know it's particularly when public institutions are eroding and like essentially we become just a, a corralled market so then, to be okay plundered. so then what so if we kind of thought okay well how could the monarchy be changed in a way that 
you might think, okay, so if we decoupled the monarchy they from the, the church. People. Okay, so if there was a... I don't de- know about decoupling them from the church. Why, well, did we, why did we start there? Well, I suppose because for some people it's like, you know, yes, it's all this kind of multi-faith nonsense. But at the end of the day, I don't mean nonsense. I mean, but that's what people would say, you know, mm. multi-faith nonsense. But the Queen is head, head of, of the, the church, church of England. And of course, you know, Charles has said, I'd like to be defender of faiths. Now, Charles need, you know, the point is that label, that term defender of the faith was actually given ironically by the Pope to Henry VIII because oh. Henry VIII actually ironically wrote in favour of the Catholic Church against Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer. So before Henry decided he wanted to get divorced, he wrote that he was a bit of a scholar. He wrote this kind of long tract and the Pope was like, my dear boy, thank you so much. You have the title defender of the faith. And even though that he then breaks with Rome, the title still remains. And of course, it still remains today. So when Charles goes, I want to be defender of faiths and just thinks you can add an S on it. And, you know, it doesn't quite work like that. And of course, I mean, that in a way you could argue that they could make quite a, you know, big, uh, significant shift or statement by perhaps no, no longer solely being, you know, head of the Church of England. But then, you know, you start to unravel this and then what are you left with? Because, I mean, you were saying they could represent all faiths or many faiths. Or the powerless. Really, I think it, yeah. like, I can't I can't think of any real reason to keep a, the royal family other than I like the TV show. You know, like a, okay. whether it's the crown, the dramatisation oh, of see, it. Yeah. Or the actual so thing from which the crown. So why do you like crown... it though? Do you, but then for you. So I'm a human and I like myth and I like story and I like being able to simplify and epitomise. But is it something the... different than celebrity? Like for you, is there something about the royal family that's different than like the Kardashians, which I've never watched. So I don't really know. Well, well, I mean, I suppose if we were trying to make an equation of it, it's celebrity plus tradition. I mean, it's yeah. like, you know, it's like there's not anything essentially different i remember thinking how the ingenuity of the opening sequence of uh, the madness of king george where you see the lackeys and yeah, yeah, la- yeah. messing with the paraphernalia of royalty like the mace and the ermine robe you see that before the entrance of the the monarch these are just bits of these are just appurtenances just items just objects but once the king is present these things are endowed with magic the the trick that has to continually be conducted is these people are respectable reverential more than that they are divine because really practically we could say that all it represents is inequality and power and a power grab at some point in history and and the, 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 we, we, the, the greater the symbols, the, the greater the crown, the more gold that has yeah, to be expended. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the simple human truth, the universal truth, the deep truth is we're all human beings and our lives are just as but valuable as why, one another. Totally. But that's why I think the Queen is quite exceptional and the sort of end of the line. Because if you think about it, I mean, the Queen is like, you know, she wears her very bright colours because she knows she needs to be seen. But she's got, you Brilliant. know, she's got a handbag, which is just an old person's handbag, you know, her yeah. gloves and a hat. There's nothing powerful about any of those states, about those items. Although I do, th- I mean, there was this, you know, that was that photograph when she'd got all the heirs. She'd got Charles, William, George, and then her handbag was like placed on the end, like a kind of exclamation mark. So That's I do wicked. think it's almost become a, a symbol of power, that handbag. But if you think about it, I mean, she doesn't represent... There's May no I bling. offer a handbag externalised vagina in which you could uh, cut yeah, off yeah. cocks and keep yeah. the cocks in there? Well, thank you for that intervention. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna throw, that you call be, yourself historian. Well, you know what? I might just put that as an exam exam question and then just put discuss. I'll quote you, Russell. But, you know, it's like 
But she does maintain there is an awe about her and a reverence around her and people don't just sort of like touch her. I mean, and part of my argument about things are going to change whether we like it or not or whether people like it or not is the fact that Charles, we know way too much about Charles's body. I mean, anyone who lived through the 80s and 90s, you know, and all that stuff, there's no kind of great degree of reverence and sanctity no. about Charles's body. It's a complete, I mean, he is a different kind of, he will be a different kind of monarch. And I think it's going to be the end of the line of monarchs and royal bodies that are kind of revered. What is magical about Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and that, and what that TV show, Dem The Crown, demonstrates yeah. so well is that it was an individual who was willing to subsume herself entirely into the role. And duty, is that's attractive. Yeah. If a man says, I am not Russell Brand, I am father. That's who I am. I'm just the father of those girls. What I want, what I think, none of that means anything. Or if you know, or any role that we take yeah. on, even if it's like I'm going to drive this cab and I'm getting you there and yeah, I'll do yeah, it. Yeah. That's so beautiful when people and that is her, isn't overcome it? their individuality. Yes, it certainly seems to it's be like that she was selfless. like, who gives a shit about me? I'm like just here to demonstrate, to carry this tradition yeah. and to look after. It. I mean, and that's beautiful. And like, I'm not like some mad um, well, nihilist, possibly, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> possibly mad, but no, but not, like. I believe that there is value in hierarchy. I believe there's value in honour, reverence and respect. All I am querying is the use of those very human ideas to mask uh, the control and domination. Yeah. That's all like, you know, that uh, I think we should like, I treat the people in my life that are more experienced than me, older than me, in fact, all human beings with respect. And like, you know, but I do demarcate like, oh, this person is a, an honorable martial artist. Oh, this is yeah, a revered yeah, yeah. historian. I don't go around going, don't you think that, you know? I mean, I'm not well, I think people, I mean, I just think the most attractive quality increasingly is people that are just good at what they do. Yeah. And you know what? I re it's such an, I mean, it's a complete aside really, but I remember, as a kid going into a uh, curtain shop with my mother and like my it was like one of those old-fashioned haberdashers and this woman was just like this expert about curtain measurements and stuff and I remember you know thinking I want to be like that not like a curtain you know shop person yeah. but like I just want to be on top of my game like that and I that's you. like you know that's powerful because what I believe is it's uh, it, it appeals to a rather outdated and dualistic idea that suggests, oh, there is the perfect haberdasher yeah. or the perfect, you know, maker of sushi. Yeah. And like, if you become that, if you embody that, it's like the embodiment of the sublime, like the, the divine mask. or yeah, God. Yeah, it's like Plato sort yeah. of the forms, isn't it? It's like the ultimate expression of beauty and yes. you partake in that or there's some kind of ultimate craft. So like when the queen does entirely surrender to duty, then she does become kind of God. If this yeah, person is like, really, all yeah. I am is this symbol. You don't, I don't matter what yeah, I want. I'm willing to die Christian for it. Life, selfless. Isn't it? That's beautiful. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah I, I think that. But like, when, as yeah, you no, say, okay. but you're right. The, the, the way that, you know, presumably the changes that happened in the 80s and 90s were as a result of the increasing power of the tabloids and those tabloid wars. I've seen documentaries yeah. on that already. I bet you were in them. And like, so like... um. So you so now with the glut and uh, deluge of information available, what is going to happen to these? Because because the, as you say, the the line between monarchy and celebrity is being eroded, and the only way that they're going to be able to fortify their traditional role is by saying no, because we're not bloody the Kardashians. We're about timeless power going back to. Well, I think what they're trying to do, and this is what. So I mean, I think you're absolutely right, and of course they used the whole motif of like being the ideal perfect family. That sort of that ended in the 80s, 90s, although some people were suggesting, you know, with Meghan being brought into the family, there is this and, you know, 
Camilla, second marriage, there is this sort of sense the royal family is a slightly more blended family that's more, you know, mirrors perhaps other families in society. But still, I mean, it's that's pretty nebulous. But what what they're now trying to do is say it's about being the welfare monarchy. In other words, it's all about philanthropy. And it's I mean, if you think about the way that because Harry basically has quite honestly said in the past, this I don't you know, I never wanted this gig. I feel yeah. really uncomfortable about it. <laughs> and so basically he's now got to a point where he's like, look, I know I've got the gig whether I like it or not. So I'm going to use this platform to showcase important but, things. But even the philanthropy model yeah. is in, has embedded in it yeah. structures of domination. If you do like an event for, you know, war veterans and whatever, that's, you know, of course, be it like people that have sacrificed and lost as a result like of combat. That's like um, amazing and I, I'm very respectful of that. But to mask the fact that the reason you have a military is to protect the privileges yeah, of the yeah, powerful yeah. behind a veil of philanthropy is just in, in further no, fear. Right. Yeah. No, and, I and like and right. even like and I was thinking when you were saying about Diana, the like that was uh, a magic she she must have some powerful essence, that woman. Yeah. Because like it's yeah that like, charisma thing again. The isn't charisma it? is yeah, the, the, the that's the that is the indefinable quality yeah. that is difficult to quantify in the sense like what about what uh, Quentin Crisp said um like what is someone asked that i saw this it was a like he did an audience with it was oh, yeah, beautiful and yeah. uh, what is charisma and he said charisma is the ability to influence without logic yeah and then yeah. Uh, then someone else asked did hitler have charisma and he said well i suppose he must have done well, he was described you know it was like there's that whole political model of the charismatic leader so somebody who does kind of you know there is that kind of you know convincing quality the way that he kind of apparently seems to be speaking the language of people and is quite manipulative but yeah i mean you know definitely the whole idea of you know charisma can be both good and bad diana put herself in those positions of like that that are the traditional sort of that there's like i say this sometimes material life aligned with archetypal life if there can ever be such a thing you know yeah. and a lot of post-structuralists would say that's all bullshit there is no essence there is no yeah, yeah, yeah. subjectivity yeah. but like a, but i would say this like when a figure like diana we've all been with somehow it seems familiar this woman healing the sick and laying yeah. on of hands and walking among the landmines you know it don't hurt that she was damn beautiful and that yeah, she had no, you know, she a potent figure but and and I feel that that, that that to sustain visible power, you n need to align with those th that language with the, the semiotics have got to be good yeah. because otherwise, eventually, you start to think and like and I would say that at the point of the Queen's death, that is going to be a period of revision as we go through this morning. These I, I read, you know, in an article that I'm sure you contributed to, like eleven days of mourning. Yeah. It's going to affect public transport. It's going to be all over the TV. You know, I remember when I worked at the BBC that there was a box ready for. Yeah, totally. uh, you know, the death of a monarch and but like when that happens and we do think well what so now what is charles we're gonna have to like you know things that we've never thought about like our stamps and our money post boxes changed all of that stuff and it seems like you're gonna go all at this time when like you know how do you be pro eu anti-brexit pro-monarchy how yeah. do you corral together that well i mean it could all happen ideas. at the same time i mean you know the idea if the you know if the queen or philip died and there was a suspension of public business then you know brexit could get delayed you know if it happened at that particular moment that would you be know, amazing that who knows so the queen could have the ultimate influence on brexit but i mean the queen's gonna you know die there will be these kind of 10 days of sort of you know mourning and lying in state then the funeral's going to happen which will be a huge, you know, massive international event. But then you've got the coronation, which will probably happen 
well, within the sort of next year, but it would certainly at a minimum be several months. And I think that's the kind of precarious time for the monarchy, mm. because at that point, people are going to go, hold on a second. How much is this going to cost? What are we saying about ourselves here? What is this? And, you know, there's going to have to be this sort of massive education programs, you know, in sense of people, like, what is a coronation? You know, what happens? And it yeah. is basically... And the bit that can't be filmed with the oil the, and all yeah, that. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. so much... The bit that can't be filmed. It's like, do we, you know, the idea that when the monarch is anointed, in the, you know, in the medieval time, that uh, you'd have a cloth held up so the people in the congregation couldn't see that bit. And of course, when... I mean, it was, In a way, because it's literally bullshit. But well, you that have would be your a... interpretation. I mean, it's well, some would say hocus pocus, whether it's a kind of, you know, in a spiritual way or in, you know, whatever, however you want to describe it. And of course, it's only the, the Queen's coronation was only the first time, you know, it was the first time ever that the coronation was uh, televised. And actually, that was down to Philip. I mean, people kind of see Prince Philip as a real stick in the mud, perhaps. But actually, I mean, I've sort of done a piece where I see him as a kind of maverick moderniser. I mean, he was the one who was like, you know, first of all, we need to kind of get on, you know, get with the program. If people are going to support us, they need to kind of see us. So he was a big champion of having the te uh, the coronation televised. He was the one who was like, what the hell is going on in Buckingham Palace? You know, people have got like, you know, there's hardly any ways of communicating from one floor to another. You know, he really did understand that everything needed to be modernised a bit, actually. Yeah, but modernisation, well, uh, it seems quite... like the conclusion of modernisation is, uh, is abolition. So, so like it's a, like that 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 is a, a, in a sense a dangerous game. And when we get to the brass tacks of the mechanic of now we anoint this person and the historical truths that we sort of convene not conveniently forget, but just it's necessary to forget, yeah, I suppose, yeah. that the Hanoverian dynasty were imported as recently as a, you know three hundred years yeah, ago. Exactly. Like, we don't it's even, all make do and mend. People. It's all make do and mend. I mean, it's people sort of think. Oh, it's always been done like this. But actually, I mean, it's like people are now discovering around the whole Brexit thing. You know, it's like we don't have a written constitution. So basically, it's because stuff's happened like this before. Well, maybe we should just carry on doing it like this. But also, it's all makeshift. I mean, you know, even in like the Tudor period, it's like, wow, we've got the first female monarch. What the hell do we do? How is a female monarch crowned? And so, for example, you know, there's these accounts where Mary is crowned and uh, she ends up coming out holding the scepter of a male monarch and the con the scepter of a female consort. Like, you know, don't know really what to do with these things. You know, there's all like, what does she wear? What does she do? Um, and so all of the, and then when you've got Edward VI, who's Henry VIII's son, he's nine. And it's like, oh, bloody hell, we can't have a long coronation because he's going to get really bored. So they've got to like reduce the length of the coronation. So all these things, actually, I mean, we can kind of fetishize history and monarchical history, but actually it's all about, you know, make do and mend. And so people are going, oh, you can't change the coronation service too much. Well, up to a point you can, but it's if you tinker too much, if you let too much light shine in, then actually the whole kind of house of cards perhaps comes crashing down. And that's and that's the big question and that's the big problem. But maybe at the moment, you know, people are like, you know, in there's so much uncertainty about now and in the future. I mean, maybe people want the kind of fairy tale of a coronation. But this is neuroses. This yeah, is, these are the realisation of our neuroses. Yeah. Our inability to accept that a, a nation is a construct, a nation is a, an, an economic and territorial reality that is, exists to, to, to sustain privilege. I was thinking about, you know, sort of recent colonial history, that the only distinction between a pirate and uh, invading army is like a kind of monarchical 
seal and like that what happened in india and the like the east india tea company and the sort of subsequent arrival of british forces to support the corporate interests you know that that's a, in a sense like that it's a veil of respectability over domination and exploitation and even though that's that's not visit so visible in a modern secular society it's head rears over with an input an issue as simple as harry's on a private jet you know even if it's spent but paid for by like a preferred party when that happens i think well hold on a minute why this dude going around on a private jet when there's so much suffering like there's no you can't ever justify it unless you want to say the symbolic life is more important than material life we like fuck the poor and the hungry yeah the symbolic life but has also, value which is a religious idea in itself yeah and also though even the symbolic life is also of course basically a symbol a symbolic life that ultimately upholds white privilege i mean yeah. it's a simple so you know it was a real uh you know i teach in a university and i have a you know history department and we had um you know they have black history month for example you know which i instinctively think great black history month october and then we had a historian, David Olashogo, who's often on BBC television, sort of, you know, like a black historian. And he kind of came and gave a talk and he was like, you know, I'm happy to support Black History Month. But, you know, like, it's like, why should it be Black History Month? Why isn't it not just history with like white and black people like in it? And we had some, you know, uh, some of our, you know, black students were there and they were like, you know, if you look at the syllabus in most universities, it's basically about you know like white people and you know like we did exist in britain and our history and our story is not told so you know actually when you chip away and you think about you know your point about symbols and stuff it's actually not even just symbols of some kind of divinely or you know whatever we want to say you know anointed figure it's also inherently about white privilege yeah. and white supremacy and you know People kind of go, oh, you know, Megan, that picture of Megan and her mother in, mixed in with the royal family, isn't that progressive and great? And it's like, really? Is that the best that we can do? People love a gesture. Yeah. Like, you know, if you're serious about change, then that, that's one of the changes yeah. that you would definitely have to consider making. Because, yes, of course, the, the, these are symbols of yeah, domination and power. I wonder what kind of conversations do you reckon took place, Anna, around the when Harry goes, I'm in love with a an actor she's african-american mixed race i mean i think i do think the queen is actually pretty progressive and i think the queen is i mean she's wise i mean she's been she's seen it she's done it you know she's lived through the charles and diana charles and camilla all of that she's very very close to harry and william i think she would have given harry a lot of uh cautious words i mean i think she would have said well do you know what you're letting yourself in for you know does she know what she's letting herself in for i really don't think the fact that she was an american divorcee you know loads of people say to me oh is this not just like wallace simpson all over again does this not show that everything's changed because you know that was an she was an american divorcee and you know uh edward viii wasn't able to you know re remain king because of her well the point was you know it's a very different prospect uh, a king marrying an American divorcee at that time than Prince Harry, who's like sixth in line to the throne or seventh in line to the throne, marrying Meghan. I don't think it really, really, you know, rocks the boat in any serious way whatsoever. And I don't think the Queen would have been opposed to it. I don't think it matters um, about the fact that she's Afro-Caribbean and or Afro-American rather. In and fact, possibly useful. 
I don't know if the Queen would have seen it like... Do you think she thinks in those terms? What, the Queen think it's useful? Don't you think she's been trained to? Don't you think you have to? I don't mean trained to in some sort of Machiavellian way. I yeah. mean by con- conditions to. Yeah. yeah, I think she is. I mean, I do think she's a pretty savvy... I mean, people, you know, she is the boss. I mean, she's the boss of the firm. And I mean, that's... When you think of it in those terms, the royal family as a firm, you know, that looks after its own, looks after themselves. I mean, and, one, and when you... I mean, again... There's the whole untold story of, you know, the royal millions, you know, the investments, all the kind of pots of money. And, you know, you could say, well, I mean, you know, to go back to the point about philanthropy, it's one thing, you know, turning up and opening a building and cutting a ribbon. But I mean, you know, it's not like the royals actually are digging into their pockets and their sort of landed wealth and going, you know here you go let's really make some fundamental transformative change our whole political discourse is based on rationalism you can't do that this is there's simply not enough money well you need a thriving economy if we support these people tax will, tri- will trickle yeah. down it shows that when it comes to the crunch we don't give a shit about rationalism we want to live in cloud cuckoo land where we nominate yeah. a family to represent what we think this country might mean well, well, because at some did, level though. it's it's parasited its way into our relationship with our parents and our grandparents the same as my yeah. relationship with West Ham Football Club. You know, West Ham Football Club can change their players, they can change their ground, they can change everything. But that, my dad didn't take me to some other place when I was seven. Yeah. He took me West Ham. So, you know, and like, you know, so it's the same with that. It's exploiting our yeah. unconscious attachment and our need to physically symbolize belonging. Like, and, and I, I feel that, you yeah. know, an honest approach to power would be like, like Enoch Powell, interestingly, once said, you can't have, you know, like Britain without a monarchy is an elephant without a trunk. It's not an elephant anymore, meaning yeah, that yeah. Britain is a monarchy. If it's not a monarchy, it's no longer Britain. Yeah. Well, like for me, the reason it's interesting to start pulling that thread is what? why do we need a monarchy? Not only that, why do we need a nation state? Why do we need centralised government? Why do we, like, you know, that's the... Well, you know the, what, I think that's... But I think what monarchy provides is basically story mm. and narrative. And, you know, because if you think about it, you know, people and you know people who might oppose the EU and say, you know, it's unelected, blah 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 blah. It does bad things to us. It's like, yeah, but what about all of these rights it's given us and so on? And actually, there is elected representatives within that, blah blah blah. Oh, but they'll totally sign up and support, you know, the monarchy and the royal family. And you know, if you think about like fundamental, you know, tenets of like sociology or whatever, and also political power and parties that triumph, it's story, it's narrative, it's story, and that's what. Like, you know, we all buy into soap operas, whether we like it or not. And actually, Mm. the royal family is the ultimate long-running soap opera. And it gives us a sense of a story about ourselves. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, when I go into, like, Westminster Abbey and I go, that's where Queen Elizabeth is I'm like, oh, my God. Because I've heard these stories my whole life. And you watch things like Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings or, you know, Shakespeare. And you see that, like, these things are all entwined. Stories are how we connect to our own conscious, unconscious drives. But also, do you think it gives us a little bit of a sense of superiority because you know we the americans come here and they're like oh my god i love your country and all it does when i'm abroad when yeah. i'm abroad, like you know like because when i'm here and when i've been involved in politics it's been broadly from the perspective of a kind of radicalism and change and yeah in, in ending inequality like these are the kind of ideas that have interested me but in america i like sit down snugly and obediently and watch that royal wedding and, yeah and, and if, were you kind of a little bit proud when people are going oh you know yeah because it's powerful 
stuff, man. Did you see that weird thing about when um when William married Kate? Like the there was like about ten different costumes that were in Disney. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. How the fuck is this happening? Yeah. It's like it's 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 dreams and myths made real. It's like an epitomization. Yeah, but because I think you know when it's I mean you know I think it's good that you could say yeah you know I'm a bit proud when you go abroad and people are like oh you know British history but then you just think. Oh my God! You know, are we not then on a spectrum where you know you get people like Jacob Rees-Mogg at the other end of it? You know, when it's like, oh, like when Britannia ruled the waves, kind of thing. Yeah, of course we're going to vote for Brexit if you know we're continually the forces of nationalism are stoked. Even if you are the most progressive liberal person yeah. there is, most people believe that there is a thing called Britain yeah. that is nationalism. Well, and when they think of like, and you sort of say I'm British, presumably, would you identify as being British and yeah. proudly? But if I was like trying to live through my spiritual awakening yeah i would say i am a conscious entity that currently identifies as male but like i recognize all these you know i'm very interested in post-structuralist philosophy i'm very interested in foucault's approach to history that how he unpicked these narratives particularly narratives around progressivism around justice and 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 institutions around health and crime that foucault would say well the 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 very story of history itself is bogus and arbitrary totally. and about supporting structures of dominance but you that, still want to feel British there is a sense that you kind of no I want to belong why get off the train at that stop why okay, get off so the like, train at that stop for your example your kids so if you mm. had to say so what is British isn't monarchy then whether we like it or not and for all the problems and the you know no, I say we decide I say we decide well, what would Perhaps you say what would, if you people. got to say okay this is this is what defines British. this isn't hypothetical this is what well, I will tell then. my daughters well, come on then I'll let's tell hear them. it we are, we've been given this story that we're these things called Britain okay. and that you're this thing called female and I'm this thing called male. But yeah. as you know, because I, your father, have taught you, we are points of awareness in the infinite. If you choose to believe in the power structures such as <laughs> male domination or the power structure known as Britain, I will support you in that. But know this, what you think of as Britain, what you think of as media, all these things are ultimately designed to subjugate you. Culture is not your friend. Culture is a force to control you. Silence! (laughs) I want a bedtime story. This is your bedtime story. Yeah, but what about, like, the whole thing about... And then the rebels rode in on their snow-white stallions. Okay, so when you take them to Windsor Castle... The gender-fluid potent... No, naughty, Daddy. When you take them to a castle and stuff, don't you want to go... This is like the history. I mean, is that? Of course. Okay. But what I reckon you can do, can't you, Anna? Can we? Can we say, look, these stories are appealing because they touch unconscious forces in us. And unconscious by its nature is difficult to narrativize and iterate. But there's no reason why these people should have this castle, why these no, people should have that power. No, but there's always, there's all, you know, there's also this, all these anthropological studies and stuff about, and actually you just see it on the, even these like, you know, Who's that, anthropological studies? Who funded them? Well, what were their intentions? Well, no, but, okay, but it, and then you even see it on like some crappy, you know, celebrity, you know, on an island or kids Love on island. an island. Well, I wasn't thinking Love Island, but you know, one of those like survivor kids on an programs. Island. You know, those survivor <laughs> programs. That's not getting commissioned. But you know, these, um, I don't know, survivor programs. And mm. basically, a leader emerges. And what I find really interesting is out of these, you know, these crappy kids, it's like a leader emerges and then they end up giving them like a shell to wear around their neck. And there's a natural kind of human want for somebody to take the lead and be looked up to as the person that corrals everybody else. Well, look, I don't know if there's no question, but it does seem that there is 
something called human nature, whilst that may vary culturally greatly more than we'd been taught previously. Yeah. And you're right, there does, there, there, you know, like what does um, our man Jordan Peterson say? Like that if you, you know, if you care about outcomes, how hierarchies will develop. If you care, you know, you're, what we're going to just book the, you know, plumbers on a basis other than the cost and efficiency of that plumber. But like uh, when it comes to power, a fundamental relationship to power, my uh, should be underwritten thusly in my view power is service power is not dominance so if you're wearing that shell that means you're up early you're grafting the way that the way that even but i don't know if it's pre-feudal you're the historian but like my understanding was that the gentry the aristocracy they get to live in the castle but when it kicks off you're up front yeah on a horse like you're taking the. i think you've got to lead by example and also it's about transparency you know, you've got to show where yeah. where the power comes from, what you're doing, and sacrifice. Yeah, sacrifice. Which is going back to because what, what the privilege has done. done is yeah. omitted uh, and eliminated the inconvenient aspects yeah. of power. Like we, no, we're not going to do the bit where we lead you in a battle. We'll just do the bit where we. I have think a big that's castle. really true, and I think if you think about it, I think that's the sort of right back to the issue of the monarchy. And I think you know, people will just say, actually, the queen has just basically put herself at the back of the queue and it's the institution you know she immediately when she became queen was like i am your queen in this office i will serve you mm. perhaps the problem with some of the younger royals is you know you can talk about whether but megan's kind of still promoting brand megan rather than brand royal family but they're sort of like there's still too much of them as rather than giving themselves up to the you know service and national yeah. service in that sense so maybe you know maybe that's the point that people if people sort of smell self-interest yeah. then that's where it really comes unstuck whereas with the queen you kind of think yeah maybe maybe she does this represent. is not a decadent and hedonistic individual while she may epitomize no, power and privilege and might while she might have resources that could be better yeah. spent feeding and clothing the poor to she lives like with tupperware cereal boxes on the table if we believe you know that documentary that was like back in the 70s that was amazing and the royal train you know and actually buckingham palace is having this you know massive refurb but because it's basically like being, you know, on really dodgy plumbing and electricity. And a lot of her own sort of relatively, you know, private apartments aren't really, you know, swanky. I heard this thing once of saying like that she's sort of ultimately, that the royals are like a middle class yeah. family. I bet they, your like, place is more ordinary. swanky than hers, you know. Well, I fucking graft. Well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> national, <laughs> national service, ultimately. I built this shit. <laughs> yeah, well, quite. I mean, she's just a kind of squatter in there, but... You know, and the royal train that she likes to travel in, it's not glamorous. So I do think she does represent something that's going to come to an end, whether we, you know, when we when she dies and that perhaps it could be the end of the monarchy. Who knows? Yeah, I think it's going to be. I think it will be tough to reinvest in that idea without Which, what we've unconsciously attributed to Elizabeth II. I think, and that's for me what people kind of mix up when people go, oh, there's a load of support for... The monarchy and actually people see the queen and the monarchy and support for the queen as synonymous with support for the monarchy it's totally not yeah it's Once been a while since we've liked the others yeah you know like margaret even like you know from the, the yeah. 60s onwards there are all these cultural revolutions and cultural yeah, changes yeah, yeah. in modern history which seems well as a historian here's a, a question do do you agree with the idea that sort of the rate of change is speeding up that things like that 50 years you know, 200 years ago saw less evolution and change. Is that, or is that a, like a dumb I don't, trope? Well, 
I don't know. I mean, I think, well, I think also we're living longer. So actually we're kind of living through longer periods of change, I suppose. Mm. Um, I mean, certainly if you think about in the, yeah, I mean, I think lots, you know, the speed of change and the degree of change has been pretty dramatic, you know, in the last, say, well, during the Queen's reign. I mean, if you think about how people, you know, sort of went modes of transport, modes of communication, television, tea, you know, she sort of sent the first telegram, you know, or not, you know, tele not sent the first kind of telegram. She sent the first tweet, you know, from the royal family. But then also at the beginning of her reign, it was all wow. about telegrams and, wow. you know. So if you think about just the nature of change, just in terms of communication during her reign, um, then, yeah, I think the pace, of, I mean, I think it's really the fact that now all kids seem to have mobile phones at the age of five or six or seven or, you know, they're just completely tech savvy. Um, I mean, I remember being at university and I was literally the day of graduation. I proudly said, I've never opened my email. And I'd heard about this kind of email thing, but got through the whole of university without using it. And everyone just put, you know, your post in a pigeonhole or whatever. Now, you know, that's and that's 20 years ago. Um, that's massively changed. Yeah. This is a, I mean, how can we, like, in, I suppose the thing about progressivism is that I believe progressivism itself to be a very conservative ideology yeah. and that the, the, the progress is presumed to head in a certain direction and it's prescribed to us the, what the teleology of progress must be. For me, true progress means that we must start to question as many unconscious assumptions as we can manage. And the, for me, first among them are the stru structures of power that, uh, dominate our ordinary everyday lives such as you know monarchy merely for me is a symbol of nation and hierarchy and nation and, and, and hierarchies of the types that I, I, I'm interested in are the very sort of thing that need to be radically altered for if we if we truly want a fairer more just more ecologically sound world but perhaps people don't want that perhaps people are happy unconsciously marching towards oblivion well I but I also think I mean like I think when you start to think about that, it's like, what defines progressive? You know, I was walking around university campus the other day and I literally suddenly became aware of how everybody was looking on their mobile phone. It's like we were all robots. Now it's like, mm. you know, the most progressive thing, like we're 20, we're in touch with, you know, the world basically on our handsets. No one was looking up. It was like if an alien had sort of landed on, it'd be like, what the hell is this? Do you have to like communicate through this device in your hand? Because no one was looking at each other. And it's like, well, what's progressive about that? And are we not basically all, you know, marching to the beat of the drum That's of right. Google and Apple yes. and whatever? And it's like, oh, my God, this is another hierarchy. You know, yes. that we're all, I mean, it's like feudal, but it's like digital feudal. I mean, it's so bizarre. And we're like the serfs that are just walking around with an iPhone in our hand. I mean, when you start to notice it, you're just like, oh, my God. This yeah. is like alien. I mean, it's really, you know, when you watch those kind of films that are set in like 2070 or something. Of course, some terrible dystopia. Yeah. But then you look We're around us and you're just like, oh, my God, everybody's doing it. Everybody's now, you know, in this massive brainwashed state. My general belief is that we can extract the things that we find beautiful about myth and power structures and somehow liberate ourselves from the incumbent tyranny and oppression so whilst we like the idea that there is a, a point of contact between us and the divine and the unknowable we needn't nominate a monarch to physicalize that and then put have them in a 
in positions of privilege. While we like the idea of tribe, we needn't lend our emotion, our anthropological yearning for togetherness to the project of nationalism. We should have tribes that are manageable to us, that are meaningful to us, where we have power over our individuality and power over our community. So I suppose that my only objection to the monarchy is that it rubs against my radicalism and my radicalism is only a desire to see truth realised. I wouldn't disagree with you. And I suppose, in essence, what I think, the more I think about it, is less is more. You know, that the, the less trappings you have, the less of everything you have, actually you're richer. And that sounds, I mean, that sounds like some like no, awful right. Christian, you know, cliche. But actually, you know what? If you've just got nothing and you've got nothing to kind of block up just your appreciation of, you know, the natural world and you're just not consumed with technology or symbols or power structures and obligations yeah less is definitely more i mean who's the richer at the end of the day yes hey you're a great teacher your students are lucky you're the head of the history faculty at london royal North, holloway university of royal london Holloway university i'd go past that sometimes well you need to drop in and come and preach your wisdom to uh, our students they'd love it get me on the monarchy syllabus I'm for heaven's sake oh you're gonna be i'm gonna come asking you my challenge for this year there's gonna be a question on the exam paper set by russell brand all right let's do it yeah let's do it okay thank you so much anna whitelock for coming and teaching me about the history of monarchy thank you pleasure Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Anna Whitelock. Remember to let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag under the skin. In the meantime, why don't you go back and listen to some previous episodes? Reza Aslan, Shepherd Fairy. Please sign up to my mailing list on russellbrand.com so I can communicate directly with you. You'll be the first to know about upcoming live shows and there will be upcoming live shows and receive exclusive mailing list only content. Plus, you've got the opportunity to talk to me. I will read your emails i can't promise that i'll respond to all of them but i will read them and check out my netflix special rebirth thanks once again for listening to under the skin from luminary media